Hello, everybody, and welcome to the live show. Uh, we, are, we are discussing important issues related to Christianity and the Christian worldview. My name is Ryan Pauly, and where sometimes I give you the chance to interact with some really smart people, to dig deeper, to, to ask your pressing objections and questions to, to hopefully gain a better understanding of how the world works and how we are to understand the lives that we are living. Now, if you subscribe to me, you might have seen I just posted something yesterday. I posted the calendar of interviews that are coming up, and so I want to make sure you know about it. Maybe encourage you to subscribe to check out what's coming up. So obviously, you're about to find out about our conversation today, but also September 16th next week, uh, Dr. John Lennox is going to come on, a professor from Oxford University, to discuss can science explain everything. Now, one change has been that the week after that, not the next day, but the next week, is Dr. Hugh Ross discussing his new book, Weathering Climate Change, and then finally finishing off the month of September with Elisa Childers discussing progressive Christianity and her new book that's coming out in October on another gospel, understanding the progressive Christian movement. So those are some interviews that if you want to continue to be informed about and understand, make sure you subscribe, you follow, uh, because there's a lot of fun stuff coming up. But today's conversation is going to be discussing the nature of the soul, consciousness, the mind, and specifically kind of what does neuroscience have to say about it? Because I was a part of a conversation where evidence from brain science and neuroscience was given to prove that the soul doesn't exist, that we don't have free will, and I want to gain a better understanding of this topic. So joining me to have this conversation is Dr. Marita Guta. Dr. Guta has two master's degrees from Biola University, completed his PhD in philosophy at Durham University. After completing his PhD work, uh, he worked as a postdoctoral research at Durham University with the Durham Emergence Project, which was set up in a cooperation between physicists and philosophers and founded by the John Templeton Foundation. His postdoctoral research was focused on the nature and emergence of phenomenal consciousness, taken from the standpoint of metaphysics, philosophy of mind, cognitive neuroscience, and quantum physics. He also took a short-term academic research at the Rivendale Institute, uh, summer at Yale, and has really kind of focused in on the philosophy of mind. So Dr. Gouda, thank you so much for coming on my show and helping us understand a very difficult issue of consciousness, neuroscience, and the nature of the soul. Thank you so much, Ryan, for having me on your show. And I really appreciate what you're doing in order to facilitate, you know, public discourse. And I am one of your biggest fans. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I think I forgot to mention that you are the adjunct professor of philosophy at Biola University and adjunct professor of philosophy at Azusa Pacific University, as well as uh, uh, associate professor at, oh no, I had it written down. Uh, assistant. Assistant professor at, and I lost the name of that university. Addis Ababa. Okay, there we go. Thank you so much. Forgot about that. I had that written down. I'm not seeing it here. So awesome. So we are, are discussing a big issue. Now, I think to start off this big issue is, okay, we're trying to figure out what does neuroscience have to say about the nature of the soul? Because that those were the objections, at least, that, that started this conversation and were raised against me proving that we don't have souls because here's neuroscience. Now, it would make sense maybe for me to go find a neuroscientist to figure out what neuroscience has to say. So why why is it important to have a conversation with maybe you, a philosopher or a philosophy of neuroscience in this conversation of understanding both the science and the nature of the soul? I think one of the reasons why we should bring philosophers and neuroscientists together is because the questions that neuroscientists are trying to understand, when they look for, for example, soul, or when they look for mental states or mental properties or even brain properties or brain states, you know, the questions that are being asked are philosophical in nature. They are not entirely empirical in nature. For example, if I say what a soul 
you know, that question is not going to be handled only on the basis of what neuroscientists actually say. So we want to understand the nature of the soul. And the nature of the soul is a metaphysical concept. You know, to understand the nature of X means what really actually makes X to be X, regardless of what we think. Neuroscience, from empirical point of view, contributes immensely to our understanding of uh, such issues. And philosophy also sets the initial metaphysical uh, tone uh, about what we are actually looking for. So I think we can make two mistakes in this case. One is neuroscientists might, might think that, oh, we don't really need, need philosophers or we don't need any, anyone who is not a scientist or something like that. There isn't anything that uh, the other side can really shed a light on what we're trying to grapple with. And the other problem on the part of the, you know, philosophers as well, well, actually, you know, we can crank out like logic-based, highly sophisticated, watertight arguments, and we don't really, we really don't need anyone else. I think both attitudes are very, very troublesome. So neuroscientists are needed as much as philosophers are, you know, needed. So I think the issue has to be collaborative effort. The issue is not kind of uh, looking at each other as if uh, kind of in some sort of uh, 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 you know, animosity, but, uh, you know, we should come together and uh, figure out what this uh, issue is. Having said that, the, the notion of soul itself is not going to be settled on the basis of empirical research. There are so many good reasons why I'm saying that, and we can kind of get into some of those issues maybe as we kind of uh, proceed in our conversation. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm really looking forward to that because those were the claims that were presented to me is that neuroscience, there's a, there's a mass majority of neuroscientists, neuroscientists have come to the conclusion that the soul does not exist, the mind does not exist, that we don't have free will because of experience, experiments they were able to produce. And so we're going to be looking at some of those reasons that were presented to me and, and thinking through that as well as trying to get some basics understood. And so hopefully we can take a very difficult concept, very difficult ideas and boil it down to really uh, help us all have a better understanding so we can better understand what we believe as Christians and also kind of uh, present and have conversations to people uh, who might disagree. Now, and that's also one thing, as you mentioned, that I really enjoy about what I kind of read about your postdoctoral research is that you were working in cooperation between physicists and philosophers. And so you are not just, I guess, a philosopher who stood back and, um, and, and just kind of focused on your philosophy, but really that you're a philosopher that has worked alongside scientists. Is that correct? And trying to figure out how we work, do what you just described as being so important. Yeah, absolutely. So my postdoctoral research was, you know, a collaboration uh, between physicists, you know, very talented physicists and, and um, philosophers as well. And we tried to understand the nature of emergence in so many other disciplines, not only in physics, but also in chemistry and also in, in, in biology and also in um, philosophy that, that includes even language. So it's kind of a diverse approach that, uh, that was taken to uh, you know, uh, explore the notion of emergence. And I think uh, my own concentration area in this project uh, had been uh, to really try to answer the question of uh, where does this consciousness that we call consciousness, you know, where does it come from? And uh, what can we actually say with respect to the origin of consciousness itself? Yeah. Does it come out of what the brain does inside the three pound weighing organ inside our skull? Or is there any chance for electrical activity or chemical signals in our brain? Or along with 
other, you know, very complicated physiological processes that really happen in our brain. Is that really what it takes to cause the phenomena that we call consciousness? Well, uh, I will um, share some of the kind of uh, core aspects of my research, probably uh, at some point in our during our conversation. But I think those are fundamental issues that we have to grapple with. And uh, I'm also kind of uh, fortunate enough to present papers uh, since 2015 in one of the largest uh, consciousness conference in the world, uh, you know, pioneered by, you know, thinkers like David Chalmers, one of the most uh, celebrated uh, you know, philosopher of you know, consciousness in the world. And um, in that conference at the University of Arizona, over a thousand people really gather from all uh, categories of disciplines that uh, have ever been created on the face yeah. of the earth. That brings mathematicians and biochemists and physicists and from humanities, psychologists and, and theologians, and religious people and meditation experts and all of that. All of these people come together to answer one fundamental question. What is consciousness? What is its origin? And... I can tell you with confidence, I'll actually be presenting another paper next week virtually on artificial intelligence and its metaphysical limitations. So what you see in that conference is we have understood the magnitude of the problem of consciousness, but we haven't made any significant progress in terms of answering fundamental questions that beset consciousness. For example, what is, what is its origin and what's its relationship to the brain activity and uh, questions related to correlation and questions related to identity. Is consciousness nothing but brain states or is nothing but brain activity inside your brain? You know, all of these questions are extremely central to our understanding of what consciousness is. And uh, as of now, uh, we have not made any kind of uh, revolutionary progress, but we've made revolutionary progress in terms of understanding how big the problem is, how complicated the problem is, how intricate the problem is, and one person and with one expertise is not going to be able to uh, handle this. So therefore, it's bringing so many people from so many disciplines, which means the problem actually increases. You know, the, the, the possibility for you to get some sort of consensus when you bring diverse people from diverse disciplines is really not promising. It really is promising in terms of helping you to understand the magnitude of the problem. It's not, it's not promising in terms of only neuroscientists are now going to have an upper hand in solving this problem. No, no, no. Other people are also asking questions with respect to consciousness. Therefore, it, we have to ex, kind of uh, uh, exercise uh, intellectual humility here, and, and we have to understand the magnitude of the problem and enjoy the challenge that consciousness poses to us. And we shouldn't really rush to pet kind of solutions. These are very superficial solutions. Oh, all neuroscientists have agreed to, to say X, Y, Z about consciousness. Why does that matter? Even if all of those neuroscientists say X, Y, Z about consciousness, I can guarantee you as a metaphysician that the core questions of consciousness are not going to be handled by 
a group of neuroscientists simply declaring that they have decided the problem simply evaporated. No, it won't really work that way. We need neuroscientists as much as they need us. So the issue is let's work together. The issue is not who, who is having an upper hand in yeah. the problem. We're not in competition here. Yeah. So I've heard it said though, and you kind of you kind of said this as well, is that we we don't really understand the the fundamental things of consciousness, and and we we don't know uh, the the big questions. And someone I think once I heard say that it's like you try and claim that you know something about consciousness, it shows how little you actually know because we don't really know. And so what would you say when you you presented this idea that if a neuroscientist comes out and says we know? Consciousness doesn't exist. You are just a brain. You don't have free will. You don't have a soul. Uh, and that's what we are making our stand on. What about on the flip side for the Christian to say, we do know what consciousness is. Here's what it is. Here's where it came from. Or is that, uh, is that a step too far for us to take uh, when taking in all of these um, kind of academic disciplines? Or can we step forward and say, hey, as Christians, we do have a solution to this problem? All right. Okay. I think I can answer this question in two ways. First of all, we shouldn't really accept uh, or invite uh, a, a, a kind of a, a sort of burden of proof that uh, that would prove to be very difficult to handle. So what we should say instead is you've actually mentioned important things in your, when you asked me this question. You said neuroscientists say there's no free will and uh, you know consciousness doesn't exist. Oh, even if it does exist, it's nothing but, you know, kind of brain activity or blah, blah, blah. All of those questions are not the straightforward empirical questions. So this is exactly where neuroscientists get, at times, things the other way around, flipped upside down. So when I say consciousness does not exist, so I'm not, you know, is that a philosophical question or is that an empirical question? So when I say soul does not exist, or soul does exist? Is it an empirical question or is it a philosophical question? I think the claims that people make, like free will does not exist and so on, these are not a straightforward empirical questions. If they are empirical questions, then you need to kind of, uh, you know, show us your empirical, where you get that, got that data and uh, how you've analyzed it, which laboratory has confirmed that and uh, which academic paper uh, you, you actually have chosen to publish your find, findings on, and then let's see that. So there are, I think what you see in most cases is people really make a statements, and then you ask yourself, what's the basis of these statements? And it's not always clear what the basis of these statements are. So I think um, Christians should should, yes, they can say there are excellent arguments for believing in soul, there are excellent arguments for believing in, in consciousness, but that shouldn't make them deny the magnitude of the problem that such issues actually pose. So you don't want to kind of think that, yeah, I've got the solution under my nose, under my belt, here it is. It won't be really that easy to prove that. But from that, it doesn't follow simply because I cannot prove, let's say with 100% mathematical certainty, my own existence, it doesn't really follow one beat that I do not exist yeah. or the conviction I have that I exist, the phenomenological uh, uh, conviction that I have, <clears throat> I seem, my existence seems to be absolutely rock solid, clear to me, is not false. So which means... In terms of proving things, I think scientists do not have any upper hand 
over other people. There are tons of things in science for which you can barely provide mathematical uh, certainty yeah. or a proof with mathematical level of certainty. So yeah. I think we are all in this together in some sense. So therefore, uh, I think we should be we should be careful uh, when it comes to the solutions. But that doesn't prevent us, as I've said, that we cannot believe. You know? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. That's good. You, you talked about there of, okay, so so then how how we then go about talking about it. So what would then be your um, your advice for those who are watching right now of if they get into a conversation about the Christian view of the soul or consciousness and 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 someone is 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 using what they think is empirical evidence like neuroscience or whatever to say, hey, look, we are we're not free beings, determinism is true and all this kind of stuff. Uh, what would be your approach that we should take? to have conversations related to consciousness, the soul, and the scientific evidence for and against it? All right. Okay. One would be to ask the neuroscientists. I'm pretty sure I have known uh, dozens of neuroscientists who do not make such claims. They are careful. They understand that their own discipline is still trying to uh, uh, have some grip on these fundamentally difficult issues. There are also other neuroscientists who really adopt a certain view of you know, mind. I think those people might say, yeah, you know, neuroscientists, science has proven, you know, XYZ does not exist or soul does not exist or consciousness. Okay, my advice is ask those people to give you a concrete evidence, empirical evidence. I mean, on the basis of what are they actually making those claims? Okay, they will tell you, we have run this experiment, we have done that and blah, blah, assess, examine, and see if that is really something that establishes what they are claiming to have established. So now, we, we shouldn't stop this conversation at the kind of a casual level, colloquial level. Okay, someone said, you know, neuroscience has justified, has proven that soul does not exist. And then you are not a neuroscientist, so you feel so insecure, and then you just walk away. <laughs> that is a very bad way to handle this issue. Yeah. So you have to stand your ground and then ask that person to produce an evidence. And then once that evidence is being produced, it is not time for you to walk away. It's just time for you to begin the hard labor of examining the nature of that evidence. And that evidence actually shows you all kinds of inadequacies, flaws, and all kinds of problems. So this is not the kind of conversation we usually have. The kind of conversation we usually have is almost predetermined. Experts know everything. Whatever they say is fine. And then there is a blanket claim that experts sometimes make. Over the past hundred years, a body of research has shown blah, 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 as if they have selectively looked at every single one of those body of evidence or experimental work. And then those experimental works are, have no flaws, no holes in them. They are kind of 100% perfect. People have been filing them away for over 100 years. That's not how science works. You see, scientific evidence, scientific conclusion on anything is tentative. As far as it works, until contrary evidence emerges, you can just think, yeah, a certain model is fine, it's working, but it, it doesn't matter whether it's working for, let's say, X amount of years, and that it doesn't follow from that, a new model that could end up debunking the current one might not come up. 
So the history of science actually shows us that. But there are tons of successes have been gained in science, but that doesn't really exempt science from, uh, uh, from being assessed, examined, and challenged. And I think science does not work in a mathematical way, like full stuff. We done, we've done this experiment and that, that's it. That's not how science works. So therefore, people should understand how science works. People should understand what science can do and cannot do. People should be also kind of a, should be able to have a capacity to discern. When science steps us out of its own boundary and encroaches on other boundaries, on metaphysical boundaries, and kind of uh, makes the metaphysical boundary to sound as if it's a scientific boundary or to look like a scientific boundary. So there are a confusion of, uh, of uh, roles here, confusions of disciplines as well. If you treat metaphysical question as if it's a scientific question, as a scientist, you will keep on making colossal mistakes in, in actually investigating that question. Let's suppose, for example, you started off by saying that soul does not exist because I have an evidence, I'm a neuroscientist, and blah, blah. What is soul is an ontological question. It's not even a scientific question in the first place. So therefore, how can you, as a neuroscientist, what kind of experimental empirical evidence can you really provide to debunk or to answer that ontological question? So we have to make tons of distinctions. Philosophers shouldn't pretend to have expertise in answering uh, scientific questions. For example, if you ask me, uh, what's the chemical composition of water? And I'll tell you about what scientists have told me, what chemists have told me, two hydrogen and one oxygen. That molecule is what we call water. Okay, but if I were to ask you, what is the nature of water? What makes water water? You know, what's the essence of water? Okay. Now, we are some kind of taking off and then a little bit kind of a, a, a parting company with kind of a empirical question. Now we're getting into what we call like uh, the identity question, the essence question. And these are metaphysical issues. So I think uh, the conversation has to be tailored around uh, whether you are treating empirical question or scientific question. And if you are doing both, then how they can come together and how you can actually handle them together. So all of these things that I'm talking about are muddled. We don't really make proper distinctions. Mm. And scientists uh, you know, pretend as if they are only doing science while they are smuggling into their own project metaphysical questions. And then they do not even know. They have already smuggled metaphysical questions into their own domain. And then they pretend as if you know, metaphysics does not exist. Metaphysical questions really do not have place in their domain. And then you try to help them understand that. They can't see that because they have already made up their mind. So in order to save ourselves from such unwanted confusions, I think we need to be able to kind of uh, lay out the outline of what we are trying to do. So the idea is, in my view, we need neuroscientists and they need us. And I think here is the bottom line. I don't believe neuroscience has either proofs or disproofs the existence of the soul. It's none of the business of near what neuroscientists do. If they really think otherwise, we should, I, I'm willing to head on with any neuroscientist to any laboratory and I would like to see what data they have in their laboratory that proves 
than an existence of a soul or yeah. the existence of a soul. Yeah. In fact, there are neuroscientists who actually agree with what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's just not uh, it's not what science, neuroscience is capable of doing. Yeah, no, I think that's so, so important to point out. And it's kind of the tactical approach that I talk about a lot of my shows. If someone makes a claim, you don't have to then bear the burden of proof to, to respond to and refute their claim. Oftentimes, the better question is, how did you come to that conclusion? And what is the evidence that you have? And then again, it's so important in, in Relentless Pursuit of Truth, just put this in live chat as well, of that he sees the smuggling in of metaphysical questions all the time, is that you say, here's the data, but then you draw a metaphysical or a philosophical conclusion based on that data, that then your worldview and your philosophies are going to affect that is not necessarily a scientific question. I think that is so, so important. Um, so... Here's, I guess, where I want to see kind of now based on that approach of, okay, defend your point. So in my conversation uh, with the, the, the atheist, is it how he describes himself, a naturalist, um, he presented that the, the brain and the soul, the mind, uh, consciousness is the same. And that experiments have been done that had said, if the brain and consciousness is the same, we should get this conclusion. They get that conclusion, and therefore his conclusion is, therefore the mind, the soul, consciousness, our free will even, uh, doesn't exist. We're not uh, those things. And so he laid out four different experiments that have been done uh, that, that prove this this point uh, within neuroscience. And so I think uh, I would love to share these and then get your thoughts on them because uh, this might be what someone might hear. So if you say, okay, how did you come to the conclusion? What was done in the laboratory that confirmed the soul does not exist? This might be maybe some evidence or a reason that is presented to the person. And so let's hear what this reason was at least, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it. So let me play the first one here. Have you seen the neurological research on damage to the corpus callosum where your consciousness literally is divided and two separate people can develop in the same brain over courses of time period? Okay, so this is taken from my, my discussion with Tom Jump on his interview on his YouTube channel. Uh, we did it back in June. So here he presents neurological evidence of you can divide someone's corpus callosum and it actually divides their identity and it creates two different people. And so to say your identity is in your soul or your consciousness, uh, no, we can show that your brain and your conscious identity is connected. Dividing the corpus callosum divides that. So what would you say in response to this well, I evidence? Think, uh, uh, actually, nothing follows from what he just said and because, uh, you know, the corpus callosum sometimes can be severe, you know, the fibers between the two hemispheres, the left and the right hemispheres, and millions of them, you know, people who really suffer from, uh, for example, uh, epilepsy, for instance, back in 1930s or something like that, the research was done and to kind of minimize the electrical, uh, um, you know, electricity from traveling from one end to another and or distributes, you know, kind of uh, throughout your brain and so on. I think that the split brain patients, okay, so what we have here is the disintegration of kind of not the disintegration of your your consciousness, but the kind of a the kind of a, uh, <clears throat> let me put it this way um, the the disunity is always related to the disunity of consciousness. So the disunity of consciousness, a, a temporary personality fragmentation, uh, but nothing more than that. So these uh, the research works have been extensively discussed by philosophers. In fact, I have included some of those discussions in my own, on my own PhD thesis. And so it's ambiguous between two things. Are we really testifying here the personality fragmentation or the emergence of two independent persons? So let's suppose, for example, neuroscientists have 
proven the emergence of persons. So how did they do that? What was the kind of the data? Now the here's one uh, here's one case that uh, one person was in, in a similar situation, brain split, uh, no, uh, split patients. Uh, he was pulling his pants up with one one of his hand, and then with the other one pulling it down. So people have really used that kind of phenomenon to say that well, one person is pulling his pants up, the other one is pulling it down. Well, I think here we do not have any evidence whatsoever that uh, two independent persons emerged. Uh, if they emerged, well, what aspect of this research actually shows the emergence of two independent persons? Are, you going, are we going to say that the left hemisphere has its own person and the right hemisphere has its own person? They can only get along each other like in a unified way until everything is okay, once we see the fibers between the two hemispheres, and then they kind of lead their own independent lives and so on. So are we gathering the data for what the person is doing, visible action, or are we gathering the data from what the person is saying, for example, from the speeches and so on? So let, let me ask this question. Okay, what does the emergence of person look like in this kind of scenario? So when is it that neuroscientists bumped into in their, in their experimental devices that person's emerging? What do they look like? What, what's really the evidence here? So the best um, assessment that many philosophers have given for this phenomenon is to say that temporary kind of a disunity of your own personality or kind of a disunity of consciousness or something like that. And for example, uh, multiple personality disorder research have shown us that there are multiple persons there. There is a single person with multiple, multifaceted personality fragmentation. So here, I think that the question here is lesion studies and uh, you know, pathological studies, for the most part, raise uh, immensely complicated questions in neuroscience and in psychiatry as well. But what one is, what, what's being assumed in this kind of scenario and then the, the, you know, this kind of, the snippet that you've shown us is that, okay, two persons emerged. Well, how, well, how did they figure that out? So I'm asking this question. How did they figure that out? Yeah. What do they look like? Yeah. Okay. What, what kind of data is there? Yeah. It's really not clear. Absolutely not clear. Yeah. So I would rather, my own argument is that you know, uh, uh, personality fragmentation, it wouldn't, by the way, on a long-term basis, it wouldn't even affect your, uh, uh, the unity of consciousness. The unity of consciousness continues being intact, but temporarily, sometimes you have such uh, you know, you know, phenomenon in a pathological context, uh, 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 but that does not really prove anything uh, other than other than helping us see what is being assumed as a result of this research. And what's being assumed as a result of this research is really uh, susceptible for further scrutiny, in my view. 
Yeah. No, that's good. And, and, and it's so important to point out that assumption. And, and I kind of pushed back in that sense. I was like, how do you actually know this is two persons, individual identities, consciousness versus a multiple, multiple personality or something of that sense? And it's like, oh, no, it, it's clear. It shows that. And I, and I couldn't see it, but there wasn't really many reasons given for that. Now, again, uh, there's another video that he sent me later on. And I sent that one to you as well, where another a neuroscientist was making the argument that there's multiple personalities because he said, uh, when you go to a movie and someone says, did you like the movie? And the person says, well, you know, I, I did like it and I didn't like it. Uh, he goes, that's not you not choosing. He goes, that actually shows that there's two persons. You did like it. That's true. And you didn't like it. That's also true. Two different persons. It's like, what, how, how, that is an assumption that really jumps outside of the evidence. This is completely uh, and directly is a category mistake because personality does not mean a person. A person is an entity with personality. Personality is a feature of that person's personality. Yeah. So when I say, for example, uh, I, whatever, what you actually described is a kind of a double-mindedness in that particular situation. So we all really experience double-mindedness and say, well, well, I, I did like, well, I don't know what to say. You know, those are like very clear phenomena that really happen all the time to us. Yeah. But from that to deduce that that is really an evidence for the existence of double percents, you are not a single person, regardless, you know, despite the fact that you appear to be a single person with a unified consciousness, is really to draw a conclusion from a very questionable premise. And the premise itself really suffers from the category mistake. And because a person cannot be equated to his or her personality. So right there, there's a problem to begin with. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, good. So the second thing that he brought up that I'm about to show is an argument that I've actually, I play a video of Sam Harris when he was on the Joe Rogan podcast. And Sam Harris presents this exact same research on the Joe Rogan podcast uh, to argue that we are not free, uh, that there's not this immaterial soul that kind of grounds our freedom and our identity. Um, and so I play this to my high school students and I ask them, hey, what do you think? Uh, what does this evidence actually show? Uh, Sam Harris, uh, you know, famous, you know, uh, he's a neuroscientist, I think, too, uh, makes this claim. Uh, anyways, Tom used the exact same uh, argument with me in my discussion with him. And so I want to play the second part or the second argument he uses to prove you don't have souls or conscious uh, and see what you have to think about this one. Recently, we've done fMRI studies where we've been able to look at the brain, look at the activity and know what this person is going to choose before they know they're going to choose it. So we, we can see, I think it was up to like seven to 11 seconds ahead where we can know what they're going to choose before they know they're going to choose something. All right. So this research, and he went on to explain more of it, and I've heard it before, is uh, you give a person a button or a choice, you know, choose left or right, and then you look at the brain and their brain lights up seven seconds before they consciously are aware of the choice to pick the left button. Therefore, your brain chemistry is determining your decisions. Uh, you're not freely choosing those things. How would you respond to this well, study? I think this goes back to what we call the famous Libet's experiment. So Libet, um, a neuroscientist, had, had done an experiment, I think, in the 1990s. And he's basically, in a nutshell, I don't want to explain the entire you know, gamut of his uh, research, but what he said was, um, you know, uh, redness potential, which is a brain activity, and the supplementary motor area where you, you know, it, 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 was 
it proceeded, it proceeded by 500, around 500 milliseconds, you know, before subjects actually felt the urge of intending to do something. Okay. So voluntary activities, he concluded from this research, are preceded by brain activities before you even know it. So which means your brain actually predetermines what you're going to end up doing. Yeah. And so, so one thing that we can say here is that a deep, serious methodological flaw. First of all, I don't really feel intention. Intention is not an urge. So when I want to engage in voluntary activity, I just engage in voluntary activity. So there isn't a moment when I feel like, okay, now the time has arrived and then bam. Okay, one thing is that it really gives you a very kind of a, an accurate description and analysis of what voluntary uh, activities uh, consist in. The other fundamental flaw with this experiment is when is it that brain remains at rest? When is it that neurons actually start firing, for example? So the, the person kind of uh, appealed to a functional magnetic resonance imaging technique or fMRI technique, which simply detects blood flow, uh, blood oxygenation level in your brain, where blood flow increases, you know, the oxygen consumption uh, corresponding to that increase increases itself. And then neuroscientists kind of uh, kind of deduce from that, that region of your brain somehow, somehow is implicated in a certain activity that you engaged in at that particular moment. So one thing that I would like to kind of point out here is our brain, neurons fire all the time. The only time they don't fire is when you are dead. So keep that in your mind. So the, the uh, redness potential, how is it connected to whatever the, those people are saying intention to do X, Y, Z? What does it actually say, taken in, taken in and of itself, about what you are intending to say unless someone asks you directly? You have first-person perspective. So you are the only person who can really let me know what you're intending to do. So according to this research, oh, we know before few seconds before you actually uh, what you are going to what, what you're going to do. No one knows that, and I think a first-person perspective is exclusively used. Even Libet's experiment itself participated subjects. Libet himself drew that conclusion based on what the subjects said. Which means they said, yeah, I felt it now. I felt it now. Yeah, I felt it now. You know, okay, he just timed that, that time. And then he said, you see, 500, you know, uh, uh, my, you know, milliseconds prior to what those people have really said that they felt the arch. Therefore, this shows that activities happen prior, blah, blah, blah. Nothing shows that this research is claiming to have shown. I think it's methodologically completely flawed in my view. And also it confuses basic notions of actions, voluntary actions, involuntary actions, and the connection between even the time, the millisecond, like 500 milliseconds. What does it have to do with me intending to do X, Y, Z? How can you actually prove that? How can you arrive at this kind of grandiose claim based on what the subjects say? What if they have lied to you? What if they haven't really understood how to respond to your research questions? And What's this intention? Okay, what's the understanding of intention in your case versus in my case? 
is intention something we run into? Is intention is identifiable from person to person? Is it something that we can collectively have? What we call this intention? Look, these are very difficult questions. It's absolutely unclear how you can settle these questions on an empirical uh, basis unless you really work through all of these notions in a very careful philosophical way and really saying intention means blah, blah, blah. And this is what we mean by intention. You define your terms and blah, blah. But, so no one knows before you do. Look, you focus on your own nature. You can actually appear to be peaceful when you are not peaceful. You can actually, uh, uh, you can disprove your friends who think that they have no, they know you in and out by giving them a, a, a misleading, you know, portrayal of yourself and then, um, just keep them in the, in the, in the dark. And I think, here, what we are seeing is uh, the confusion between first-person perspective, why it's exclusively used, why it cannot be usurped by other people, regardless of what psychologists are saying sometimes. And people really, ad- some philosophers advance what they call heterophenomenology. For example, Daniel Dennett, heterophenomenology is all about reducing first-person perspective to third-person perspective. Because third-person perspective is, is a perspective studied by psychologists, by scientists, and so on. You are not even an authority in your own phenomenological experiences, according to these people. Give me a break. I am the authority, and I'm not going to listen to you. Let's say, for example, I'm having a splitting headache. Medical doctor who is examining myself is not an authority how it feels like to have that particular headache. I am the authority. <laughs> so he should listen to me yeah. in order to understand how it feels like for me to have that meeting headache. So there are enormous amount of confusions in this research because we've already muddled the, the, the metaphysical, ontological, philosophical questions with confuse them with scientific questions. We're not bringing the two questions together. We're just swapping the role and say, no, 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 philosophers uh, can somehow handle very prop- properly the smuggled in metaphysical and ontological questions. I think this, this is exactly what this is, research is showing. But I can, I can just say, I have published arguing the exclusive, uh, exclusivity of a, a, a first-person perspective. I have, I have published challenging neuroimaging techniques, what they can and cannot do. They are excellent in clinical context. They are really, really highly limited in cognitive science context. Okay? Blood flow in my brain tells you nothing whatsoever why I'm bored, why I'm planning to take mathematics as opposed to quantum physics, why I'm interested in this and in that. It's just a blood flow. Now you create a pattern and tell me that pattern is now correlated with me being interested in mathematics. Where would you stop? Can you really keep on producing patterns for potentially limitless things that I can possibly do at the conceptual level. Hmm. You can't do that. Yeah. So I didn't say exactly that in my response, 
But I think what I did say had a little bit of that in there. Uh, and what I did respond with was this idea of our conscious awareness being first person, uh, you know, private, not accessible. Uh, if I am thinking about a, a thought and I say, my, my mom is, what color shirt is my mom wearing in my thought right now? You can't look at my bank machine and figure out what color shirt my mom is wearing. You have to have me tell that. Now his response to that, uh, he does have a response. And so that is actually the third argument we're going to be looking at is his response to that. So let's watch this third part of uh, where he kind of responds, this idea of conscious experience being first person private. If we know the orientation of your brain state, we can actually know exactly what you're thinking just by looking at your brain state. The reason we can't know that initially or right now is because the way uh, your brain develops, it's neuroplastic, it develops based on your inputs randomly. So it's kind of like how language developed. If we just jump into a society 5,000 years ago, we wouldn't know what they're saying. But if we followed them from the point of when sounds started to like originate, where they're like grunting, like, arr, 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 and that meant like horse or whatever, <laughs> then we could, we could trace their entire uh, linguistic tree to know exactly what they mean by every single word. And the brain's the same way. If we could go back to your childhood and watch your brain form and watch your sense experience of that you're having, like I saw a fire or whatever, and then that neuron in the brain lit up to to associate with fire, then we could actually just look at your brain state and know exactly what you're thinking just as a reference to your sense experience. We wouldn't need direct uh, awareness of your conscious experience because we could just map it just by looking at your past experience and seeing how it mapped onto the brain. Okay, so he went on to say that he thinks in the future, uh, his prediction is that we will fully map out the brain and therefore fully know what someone is thinking without having to need their conscious experience of their thoughts. I think this is kind of, a, it takes us back into kind of a 1814 uh, Lapsalian demon or, you know, a French thinker who thought that if we know kind of the position of every electron or the momentum of every electron and so on, uh, we can be in a position to predict uh, the future accurately and so on. That kind of uh, determinism uh, is now debunked. And I think I don't think anyone takes that very seriously uh, in light of the emergence of quantum physics itself. So um, I think here a fundamental <clears throat> confusion between the complexity of a physical organ with uh, the complexity of the mental uh, functional complexity. So your mental life is distinct from your brain and the complexity or even if you trace, you know, from <clears throat> beginning, <clears throat> let's say, excuse me, you know, from, at, at the day one, how the physical brain is kind of uh, developing and, and so on. That wouldn't really shed any light on how my the complexity of my mental life is also developing. So these go really kind of in a highly integrated and, uh, and uh, interdependent manner, but the two are distinct. So neuroscientists can really can, can certainly claim that they can really tell us how the brain develops and they can actually measure and, uh, and kind of uh, see how the brain develops. But I don't think they can really show us how the complexity of our mental life in conjunction with the complexity of the physical aspect of the brain uh, actually develop. So now, now this is the claim. So the claim is being made, but it's really not clear what justifies this claim again. So it's a presupposition. This is just an assumption. And for the assumption for which I don't really see any forthcoming uh, um, a proper um, evidence. So 
the main issue here is, I think, um, the, the pure physicalism that's grounded in determinism, that's what it's, it's being assumed here. So, uh, but it's an open question whether, you know, um, brain state is the same thing as mental states and mental whether mental states are distinct from brain states. In fact, the jury is, is still out. And in fact, philosophers and scientists are divided over this issue. Some are physicalists and they push their physicalist agenda. Others are dualists. And along with that theory of mind, the dualist theory of mind, they really handle these things. So therefore, at the least, neuroscientists cannot have the last say over this issue and it's a well-exhausted uh, area of research. And what's being um, assumed here is a pure determinism and physicalism. And it's not clear to me why we should actually concede this point to this uh, person. Because basically, two things are confused, as I've said. The complexity of a physical organ is distinct from the complexity of your mental life. Yeah. The two are distinct, and one cannot be reduced to the other. Hence, it follows that the conclusion as suspect to me. Yeah. And I think, yeah. And there's, you know, even what I was thinking through about this as well is, is the more fundamental thing is like, let's, even if it's possible to map out a brain, how are you creating the map? You're creating the map by saying, here, this chemical fired. What did you think? I thought about my mom wearing a green shirt. Okay. That chemical is associated here. Oh, here. And so kind of like his language example of you hear words. What do you mean by those words? I mean horse. Okay. Now I'm creating the map, but you can only know what someone means or what someone's thinking when they tell you. And exactly. so it requires a conscious. So maybe if it's possible to map out a brain in order to even create the map, you have to have the conscious first person private per individual to share with you what that thing is associated with. The, the problem is here, we do not have any good grip on the origin of thoughts. It is an example for you. You shouldn't be shocked. Have bizarre thoughts all of a sudden ever crossed your mind? Like you're not expecting, you're just, you know, just very scary thoughts. You distance yourself. You do not own them. You do not really think that you're an agent who is responsible for causing those thoughts. Where are they coming from? Number one, we do not have any idea as to the origin of thoughts in many cases. The other one is, uh, can I see if I peer into your brain, your beliefs, your desires, and your intentions? Can I point out to them, do they have size? Do they have colors? Do they have shape? What are we talking about when we talk about mental state? Neuroscientists, I think what they are attempting to say is they can correlate. You are a subject. I can give you, let's say, sip this coffee and then tell me how it tastes like. And then concurrently, I peer into your brain and I kind of a cordon of a certain region in your brain. Oh, every time Ryan says, wonderful, it is great, that region is somehow deterministically responsible for that kind of experience. Here is a mind-boggling issue here. Your test of coffee is nowhere to be found on your test buds. The test buds are simply facilitators of your test experience. But how coffee tastes like itself cannot be traced back to the facilitators. 
So where is it coming from? British philosopher John Locke make a distinct, made a distinction between, he drew a distinction between primary properties and secondary properties. So your, your experience of test, your experience of smell, your experience of sound, your experience of vision, what you see and how things look to you, these are secondary properties. They do not really uh, exist in the organs, in the neurons, in the cells that really facilitate such experiences to be possible. So there is a deep mystery here. So this actually brings up why the relationship between mind and, let's say, mind slash soul or, or, or the self are incredibly difficult. So we are still trying to understand what connects the two aspects of our nature. And there is absolutely no uh, there are attempts, excellent attempts have been made, and people are continuing in, in their efforts, but there isn't really a solution yet where everyone is now being sent home, dismissed home, okay, you guys are out of job, we've solved this problem, until the uh, next one emerges, then, you know, go home. No, I think this is a real problem, as other issues in science are also real problems. For example, in physics, there isn't a solution how to bring quantum physics and general relativity. It's an outstanding problem. In biochemistry and in, in, in biology in general, we do not have a solution for what life is, the origin of life. We just don't have one. We can talk about features of life, but that does not mean we have solved the problem of life. It's an, it is an outstanding problem. Hence, it is also an outstanding problem what consciousness is in our case, what the soul is in our case, what the mind is in our case. Yet there are different reductionistic proposals that we cannot talk about them because of lack of time. But what I'm saying is let us simply be honest and then embrace the magnitude of the problem as opposed to oozing out kind of uh, very superficial uh, uh, solutions that really don't worth any uh any credible attention. Yeah, wonderful. Well, we are, man, we are so quickly approaching our time limit. We're like five minutes away. There's one more kind of evidence that he presents on doing damage to the brain. And then I do want to finish with one uh, last kind of question he presented to me, as well as the same question came in for you. Uh, And so I want to see kind of just quit ending with your thoughts on that question. So let's watch this last and fourth argument that Tom presented in my conversation with him. It was because there's a similar experiment is where we take an electrode, we put it in your brain, we can simulate a certain part of your brain and know what color you're seeing or what sound you're hearing. Or we know there's a specific neurons that are associated with faces and we damage those neurons. You can't recognize faces. And we've mapped out lots of parts of the brain where we can just say this part of the brain and pretty much every human does this thing. And if we damage it, they can't do this thing anymore. Um, and so it seems like using the assumption in the past tense, rather than making future predictions about choosing a button right or left, we can actually say this part of your brain does this, this neuron does this in general, and just zap it and say, okay, you can't do that anymore. Physically impossible because your brain doesn't have the capability. It seems like we are able to make those kinds of predictions pretty regularly about how the brain works and how neurons correlate to thought experience. And if you damage a certain thing, you can't have the thoughts anymore. All right. So what would you have to say about this idea of damaging certain neurons in the brain damages our ability to have thoughts, therefore your thoughts are your brain? I think this is kind of another problematic assessment. First of all, yeah, you can use TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation method, and then you can make me kind of, let's say, move my finger against my will, and I can, I can 
tell you that it's not uh, it's not something that I would like to do, but you're kind of forcing me to do it against my will, blah, 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 blah. So what is being asserted here is, you know, correlation. So correlation, unfortunately, is not identity. So, so for example, let's suppose take a, in my prefrontal area, let's say broca area, for example, in my temporal lobe area, the center, one of the centers of language that's responsible for language production. Uh, and the other center is wernick's area is just responsible for language perception. Let's suppose you messed up with that and it kind of, uh, you know, you know, destroyed the neurons in that area, for instance, and I ended up not being able to produce language. So what happened at this point? So the destruction of that region does not really justify in a causal sense. The capacity that I had prior to this destruction to produce language is somehow necessarily metaphysically it kind of is rooted in that region. It only means that that region used to facilitate that capacity I have, which is independent of the region itself. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we cannot confuse here the capacity I have with the region that is designed to facilitate that capacity. So this is a fundamental confusion you always run into empirical research. Correlation is not causation, nor is it identity. Therefore, nothing is established at this point. No one is going to deny correlation. But what is being assumed and what is being said is somehow causal relationship. So uh, that is a fundamental mistake. Therefore, lesion studies, whether they are you know, occurring through accident or manually, for example, destroying neurons through using, let's say, TMS or other techniques. There are many of them in neuroscience or clinical context. That doesn't really establish anything whatsoever. So this is another issue that really shows how people really misunderstand correlation. So therefore, for me, it doesn't pose any problem. By the way, one simple example. My, I use my legs to walk. The capacity I have to walk is immensely complicated if you take time and think about it. So you do not really want to attribute the, the legs, the capa- you do not want to identify or reduce the capa- capacity I have to walk with the leg that I used to walk. That's precisely what happened here. So this is really a very serious mistake. And for me, it establishes nothing. Yeah, good. Now, I'm curious what you think really quick uh, on an example that I often use to try to prove that kind of correlation identity thing is that my phone right here is absolutely necessary if I'm going to access the internet. And if you destroy my phone, my ability to access the internet is impossible. But that doesn't mean the internet is my phone. Like you're talking about two fundamentally different things that need each other. The internet is useless if I don't have anything to access it. But just because this damaged means I can't get here does not mean they're the same thing. Exactly. That's the point. Because uh, people talk about, by the way, I have, I have given a, a very extended lecture on whether brain thinks or not, you know, on, on one of the YouTube, uh, uh, you know, at Susa Pacific University last year. And I, get, I go into deeper, at a deeper level tackling these issues. I think you pointed out very, very well. We shouldn't confuse the capacity we have in virtue of being a human being, in virtue of being the source of entities that we are, in virtue of having the sort of nature that we have, we have tons of capacities in different areas. Those capacities cannot be reduced to what? To the facilitators of those capacities, which is brain facilitates tons of things. Mm-hmm. It controls almost every activity 
activities that happen and take place in your body. But that does not mean my mental life is the same thing as brain activities yeah. in, in my brain or neuro, it have to do with neurotransmitters or proteins in my brain or different sensing proteins and blah, blah. Anyway, we, we, we yeah. could have talked a lot about this. Uh, oh, absolutely. There's so much more to say. But anyway, that's a fundamental problem. I think uh, we shouldn't really confuse about. Wonderful. That is so good. Now we just hit an hour, but there, like I said, there's one last question. Is it okay yeah. if we ask? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now I know there's probably a so, so, so much that could be said on this, but maybe we get a quick little response. Uh, this is a one more kind of objection. It's like, okay, Christian, you think that there is a soul. Uh, you want to argue that consciousness is, is different than the brain. Then here is a challenge to you. And also this question came in for you. How do you then solve the interaction problem with body and soul? How do they interact with each other? Oh, good, good. This is one of the most important. Uh, this is an excellent question, by the way, and yeah, also you, one Lucas. of the most uh, mind-boggling. Yeah, Lucas was my former student, so I'm glad to see him here. And this was submitted uh, so, on Facebook. And so again, if you're following on Facebook, you can interact on things before the interviews come up, and so you can see what's happening and submit other questions as well. So there you go. Right. So uh, the interaction problem is exactly why Cartesian dualism was rejected by so many people. So Descartes argued that there are two different kinds of substances. One is immaterial substance, such as the soul, the self, or the immaterial substance. And on the other hand, uh, there is another substance that we call the body itself, the brain, the physical substance. Descartes thought that what actually makes, a, makes these two kinds of you know, substances different from each other boils down to the following things. In the case of the immaterial substance, which is the soul, its essence is grounded in thinking, or let's say consciousness. In the case of the material substance, which is your brain and your body taken as a whole, its nature, essence, is grounded in its extension in a space. It extend, extends in a space. In fact, Descartes thought that pineal gland, uh, it was kind of, it's, it's a, it's a gland toward the center of your brain was responsible kind of to host your soul. It's at the seat of the soul and facilitates everything. And in fact, the soul runs the body. Here is what many philosophers, starring, uh, you know, philosophers uh, at the time of Descartes himself pointed out. Now Descartes, you've said, you've introduced two separate, different, separate is a very misleading word, but he did he did actually believe in the unity of the body and the soul. But anyway, he said, okay, these are two different substances. So how can they really interact with each other? You say that one is in a space, one is outside of the space. How is this possible? Well, because of that, many people shunned and then they just uh, kind of uh, keep it at bay. And then they say, no, we don't want to defend Cartesian dualism because of the interaction problem. So we want to kind of defend, let's say, a Thomistic version of interaction problem that doesn't really bifurcate these two substances and push them in two different realms. And so the interaction problem is, by the way, it's a problem either of metaphysical in nature or epistemological in nature. So it's a problem. We do not know how the body and the soul interact. No surprise, for the past 2,500 years or plus, this question hasn't really received any lasting solution. One of the fundamental problems in, in the theory of mind is really to understand if soul exists, how it can interact with the body, which is a physical. So there is a scientific conception that goes along with that. Does 
this world, which is scientific according to so many people, does it really allow something that's entirely non-physical? For so many philosophers, because the universe is physical, non-physical stuff cannot really exist or interfere or has any role in a physical universe. Therefore, we don't care. If solar exists, then it has nothing to do with what's happening here. So, yes, it is the problem. So what? Okay, let, let me put it this way. So what? It's a problem. We're working on it. It's a problem. No one has solved it, uh, solved it yet. Physicalist philosophers who do not believe in the existence of the soul, they say, well, we don't have to worry about the interaction problem because we do not believe, you know, in soul. So therefore, we do not really have any problem. So people who believe in the existence of soul, whether it's in this Cartesian version, whether in this Thomistic version, whether in this hylomorphic version, Aristotelian version, and so on, you know, there is still the interaction problem is really not 100% solved. You can have that. If you are a physicalist, you have other headaches to work on, hmm. okay? You can't reduce mental states to brain states. You can't reduce consciousness to nothing but what's happening in my brain. So you need to, ex you need to explain my subjective experience. You need to experience my phenomenological experiences and the better of those experiences. These experiences are bearers. And now tell me the nature of the bearer. Do you think my subjective experience is now, uh, you know, rooted in my brain? Are you saying that the brain is the subject of how test, you know, coffee tastes the like for me? Is that what you're saying? Are you saying that my brain has a feeling of test? You can come up with tons of questions, whether you are a physicalist or a dualist. So the interaction problem, we can go the Leibnizian route, pre-arrange interactive model by God himself, which God also continuously, you know, sustains that interaction to continue without being collapsing, for example. Now, Here's what I can say to you in a nutshell. Physicalists or materialists who think that they have really shown us that soul does not exist, they haven't. It is their right not to believe for the reasons that they think they have. Dualists, on the other hand, if they think that soul exists for the reasons that they have, they can provide their you know, arguments to the table so the interaction problem is not going to be an evidence now to argue soul does not exist. That's a kind of fallacious inference. Yeah. The interaction problem, in my view, either it is an epistemological problem, in which case, so what? You have tons of epistemological problems. You do not know how many, many things operate, even in science. You are in the dark, but you have a glimpse of how they operate, but you do not have a fuller picture. If the interaction problem is a metaphysical problem, then I would like to see good arguments being presented. Hmm. So if it is a metaphysical uh, problem, what these people are saying is literally the body and the soul, they cannot interact for what metaphysical reasons. There are tons of things that other people really bring up to you challenge this point, but the reasons are reasons that cannot be, uh, cannot be let go of without uh, kind of uh, careful scrutiny and examination. So I would like to say for this, uh, you know, uh, kind of in response to this question, so what? Yes, the in interaction problem is a problem. Most likely we don't know how they interact as opposed to 
there is inherent impossibility of the interaction mm-hmm. between the body and the soul. Here is how I would like to finish if you give me one minute. Yeah. For people who believe in the existence of God, God is entirely a spirit. God is immaterial being, a spiritual being. Okay. So if the interaction problem is true, according to so many people, then God's interaction with the physical universe that God has created must also be impossible. Well, you you kind of take a step backward here because, well, if you believe in the existence of God, God is the primary agent, in fact, the sole agent in causing you know this universe. So once you cause this universe, you can't go ahead and say, well, he cannot interact now with the physical universe he yeah. himself has created. What kind of problem do you have now if you apply the interaction problem to that theological problem? What you end up doing with, you do not actually know how he is able to interact with the universe, with the physical universe he has created. Not that there is an inherent impossibility of interaction between God and the physical universe that he has created. So now the problem becomes purely epistemological, not metaphysical. So therefore... Yes, there is an interaction problem, and I will put as an assignment for your listeners. They have to work whether it's an epistemological problem or it's a metaphysical problem, or both in different senses. So I'm sorry to say, Lucas, so what? Yeah, and I think that's so good because, again, I think if you're going to say, well, because it's an epistemological problem, we just don't know how it works. Therefore, let's reject this theory and move to something more of a physicalist. I mean, science is based on, so to speak, epistemological problems of we don't know how things work. And so let's do experiments to try to learn more. And it's the Christian, if you know, it's the atheist that often says to the Christian, oh, well, you just say, I don't know how it works. God did it, that that's a science stopper. And so if we say, oh, we don't know how the soul and the body interact, therefore physicalism is true then that's also a stopper of our philosophical and scientific research to try to figure these things out. And so uh, that should just encourage us more to figure these things out. Well, Dr. Gouda, you have incredibly given me a lot to think about. This is an education for myself as I am listening to you talk. And I know others are have learned a lot about as well. There's a lot to think about here in this conversation, thinking through how we understand the Christian belief of the soul, consciousness, how that fits with the scientific evidence that we have. I have listed uh, the links below in the description of all of your academic research and where people can learn more about what you are doing. And so thank you so, so much for taking this time and helping us understand this difficult issue. Thank you so very much for having me on your show. I hope this is not going to be the last time yeah. and we can kind of uh, meet together to discuss other issues. I wish I could discuss so many things in oh, science, especially, you know, brain imaging techniques and blah, blah, but it's okay. I think this could be an appetizer and m- many people might have objections against what I've said, but I did not really try to express uh, what I believe kind of on all of these issues yeah. as opposed to laying out and, and issuing challenge for all of us to have a middle ground and and what we say with respect to those issues. Yeah, that's so great. And that's hopefully, that's where I want these conversations to start is to start to intrigue you to look deeper into these issues. And Lucas, I'm sorry, you did submit other questions that we couldn't get to. And so maybe there will be future conversations I have. So again, thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. All right, all of you who are commenting, thank you so much for joining this conversation. I hope it was an encouragement to you. And just a reminder, next week is John Lennox. The week after that is Hugh Ross. The week after that is Alyssa Childers. That is the month of September. Some great, great conversations. So if you want to enjoy more of these discussions and present your questions, your objections, to dig deeper in these specific issues, subscribe and like uh, So and share this. Again, if, if this has been an encouragement to you and you know this would be a blessing to someone else, share it with them so it can be a blessing to them as well. Again, this is also uh, supported and sponsored by you. So if you want to contribute to the show, you can do so at the link below on Patreon. So thank you guys so much for this conversation. I hope that it has been a blessing and encouragement to you. Have a blessed rest of your week. Goodbye. Goodbye.